following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. addition to the text of Luke 2 that was read a few, mo- few minutes ago, I'm going to bring this verse from Isaiah alongside it to give you some thoughts tonight. And this is Isaiah 61, verse 10. The Lord speaks through his prophet, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. When a woman expects to deliver her first child within a short period of time, I'm sure she packs, or at least mentally packs, an overnight bag to be grabbed on the way out the door to the hospital, not knowing exactly when that bag might be needed. And if that same woman knows she will be traveling a far distance from her home and expects the possibility that her baby will be born in some strange place she knows not where, I'm sure that that overnight bag contains not only her own personal items, but supplies for the clothing and care of a newborn infant. Ladies, you have to try, it's not easy to do, but you have to try to picture the situation of the Virgin Mary. She probably was less than 20 years old. She had no choice about where she would give birth. We know that Joseph and Mary traveled about 80 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. You can do that distance in a car today in about an hour and a half. But they were answering a tax registration summons of Caesar Augustus, and Caesar determined the timing. And so they had to go at a time that was hardly convenient for Mary. Tonight I'm drawing attention to something that seems like a tiny detail of Jesus' birth account in Luke 2. Two words. You've heard these words in the Christmas story all your life, as long as you've been hearing the story. Somehow they just grabbed me, and I thought they had to be explored. The words are swaddling clothes. I think in 40 years of ministry, I've explored almost every detail of the Christmas story in some way. Herod's part, Joseph's part, Mary's part, the angels, the shepherds, the magi, the magi's gifts, you name it. But I've never thought of concentrating on swaddling clothes. I actually had a phone call from a minister friend, and he said, well, what are you preaching on for Christmas Eve? I said, swaddling clothes. (laughs) He said, you mean your sermon's about diapers? 
I said, well, maybe you could say that. Words like this are not in the text of Scripture for no reason, particularly when they're repeated twice. If you would have paid attention to what I was saying when I read Luke 2, you would have noticed that in verse 7, when the birth is described, it is said she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger. And then the, the interesting thing is that, okay, that would just be a, a report of saying she did what a mother normally does for a baby. But what arrests my attention is when the angel is giving information to the shepherds a few verses later in verse 12. The angel says, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, laying in a manger. What did he mean was the sign? What was unusual, in other words? If there was a sign, there was something about this that was out of the ordinary that was going to be remarkable. Well, you say he was in a manger. That's not where babies usually are. Well, I think both parts of what the angel said were unusual. And I'll get to that in just a minute. But we believe that the small details of Scripture tend to expand in meaning when they're considered against the backdrop of the importance of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I want you to see tonight that what Jesus wore for his first earthly garment was the garb of the poorest kind of human child on this earth. But on the other hand, there is a kind of clothing that he offers to bestow upon us at our spiritual rebirth as his disciples that is nothing less than a robe of regal and eternal splendor. Let me speak for a minute, first of all, about the clothing and care of newborns in the Bible. What exactly are these swaddling clothes? You hear these kind of words and you never think about them. Well, first of all, you need to know I address this subject as a veteran father. My children are grown adults now, but our last two were twins. And in our day, there were disposable diapers, but they were expensive. When you were living on a minister's salary, my wife said, we're using cloth diapers. Twins, cloth diapers. Getting the picture of what our clothesline or our dryer look like much of the time. I have memorable experiences relating to how babies are swaddled. And we're going to leave it at that. But historians tell us that for centuries in various cultures, babies were literally swathed in a kind of cocoon wrapping with strips of common homespun cloth. Now, this wouldn't be burlap, but it also wouldn't be the softest and finest weave. It would be weave that someone could make in their own home and produce, very common cloth, long strips of it that would go around the baby until you almost had a small mummy laying there, who, of course, had to be unwrapped again several times every day for sanitary purposes. Now, it's interesting to me that even in the 21st centuries, hospitals and nurses know, the medical science knows, that wrapping a baby, not so tight they can't move, but fairly snug, is a good thing to do. My daughter-in-law tells me that this is actually trying to 
imitate the enclosure of the womb. It comforts the baby to have that security. I think we call it a receiving blanket, don't we, that, that is rather bound around the shoulders, at least of the child, and makes the child feel that it is tightly and securely enclosed. Well, in the New Testament, it's interesting that the word swaddling clothes only appear here in Luke 2, but there's one other place in the Bible where they are used. It's an interesting place. Ezekiel, in the Old Testament, obscure prophet. Most people don't read Ezekiel very often. Ezekiel 16.4 has God speaking to the prophet or by the prophet about his people in Jerusalem who on that occasion had been very unfaithful to him. And so God speaks about an analogy and says, on the day you, that is the believers in Jerusalem, on the day you were born and your cord, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor, nor were you wrapped in swaddling clothes. In other words, he's saying you were like an outcast baby. Your mother gave you birth but didn't even give you the basic care to clean your body. Salt was used to to cleanse, like a disinfectant to cleanse the baby after it was born. You were left in a field and your mother walked away from you, God said. That's the description of unbelievers. You were left there crying. Your umbilical cord was, was still attached. And then God goes on in that passage to tell the interesting story how he took Israel up. He adopted her. He cleansed her. He took her as his own. But there's a reference to the swaddling clothes once again. And a reference like that with its graphic portrayal of an abandoned child, by the way, something that happened very commonly in the ancient world, especially for girl children. Sorry, half of you that I'm speaking to, but you all know that throughout history, the boy child has often been the one preferred, and girls were abandoned. But the graphic description here is one that applies to Jesus. We think of what was going on in that straw. Whether it was a cave or a barn, we're not sure. There in Bethlehem, there were a lot of caves that were used for housing animals in Bethlehem. There in that rather smelly place, you know, you've been in a stable. Stables are nice, can smell sweet if they're kept cleaned out all the time, but you can imagine an ancient stable wasn't so clean. There was Jesus born, and his mother probably rubbed him with salt, and, and if she could find some clean water, cleansed his body and cut the umbilical cord. And Jesus needed diapers. Are you offended by that? (laughs) You certainly shouldn't be. If we're saying God became man, he had bodily functions, and he was a child like any other child. And what we would think from just concentrating on this swaddling clothes is the reality, the commonality of God become flesh. He was wrapped with a poor woman's homespun cloth, the only kind she had, and it encased the body of the Son of God. There's a wrong idea somewhat common about this when some people will talk about the swaddling clothes because they were bands that were sort of wound around the child. And, and uh, somebody got the fanciful idea one time and said, 
hey, that's just like what happened to his body when he was dead. And so maybe we should think of this as a prefigurement or a symbol of, of his death, that, that he was wrapped the same way when he was born as when he died. Well, you know, you can get a little too fanciful with the Bible, and we think that's what that is. But the correct understanding here is really something quite simple, quite obvious. It's telling us that Jesus in his birth was exactly the same as any other infant. Now, why then did that have something to do with a sign to the shepherds? Well, again, think of what the shepherds were being told. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He's David's descendant. He's the Savior. He's the Messiah. He's a grand, important person. And here's the sign. He's wearing peasant-style diapers. That's how you're going to identify him. In other words, don't go looking in Herod's palace. Don't go to the, you know, the official residences of the rich and powerful to look for him. Don't look for a child in gold brocade or with a little jeweled crown circlet upon his forehead. Look for someone in a barn wearing homespun clothes. That's why this is significant. This most significant child is going to be found wearing the least significant kinds of clothing that you can imagine, not that which you would look for among the rich or the powerful. Now, secondly, I want to carry this a little bit further, this idea of clothing. And I'm moving into the spiritual realm here, more away from the literal realm. But just as Jesus came as a real infant and had to wear these homespun bands around his little body, would you think for a minute about the spiritual rags that you and I wear upon our lives, at least as God sees it? When the lights were a little brighter, I could see you better, and I, as every Christmas Eve, all the red, all the green, you all dress appropriately on Christmas Eve. No other time of the year is the congregation so well color-schemed. You know, it's kind of like a Penn State or Ohio State or whatever team you go to, you know, in the whole stadium's the color of the team. You do a good job on Christmas Eve with that. We even have a few men here who over the years I know have, have their special pair of Christmas slacks. I think there's some of you men that have. I, I didn't notice them coming in tonight, but I have seen them in the past. Very bold plaids that a few of our men wear only on Christmas Eve. Men with ties with batteries that play jingle bells and things like that, you know. I don't see this stuff any time except at Christmas. Well, I have in mind not the literal clothes that you might be wearing, but what the Bible says your soul naturally wears through life. Isaiah 64, not the passage I read in 61, but another passage, Isaiah 64, 6, has a verdict on the sinful condition of humanity. And it says this, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. That's the same passage which in probably more familiar translation to many of you says, all our best deeds are filthy rags. Filthy rags. You know, we Americans are generally pretty well-dressed people. Our church 
collects clothing that goes to Water Street Mission the last Sunday of every month, and it amazes me, the pile that comes in the vestibule out here when you drop off. It's huge. It fills a, easily fills the, up the back of a pickup truck, a, a pretty well-mounded up, with clothes you don't need from one month. We're people who get to look pretty good in the way we walk around in this world, but Maybe we don't think about what we, how we are dressed spiritually and what we look like to God. And God says, apart from what I will do for you, you're walking around wearing rags that are terrible looking and they stink. And you don't even know enough to take them off. You know, have you ever had the experience of, of clothes being absolutely ruined by something you did? Uh, some kind of construction or a painting or something happened, uh, you, you spilled chlorine on your clothes or you ran into a skunk, boy, that would do it. You know, you say, burn these things, just get them out of here. God says, there are people in this world who don't even understand that that's the way they're dressed all the time. They're wearing filthy rags spiritually. You see, the Bible has a lot to say about spiritual clothing. It all goes back to Genesis, the Garden of Eden, the man and the woman. In their original innocency before sin, they were naked and not ashamed. That is a clear indicator of what they were like. There was nothing to be ashamed of. And then sin came, and they were ashamed, and, and they sought to clothe themselves in crude ways. And, and there's a verse there in the early portion of Genesis 3.21 that says God gave them garments of skins. The theologians like to point out that blood had to be shed for humanity's shame to be covered that first time. Now, details like that are of doctrinal significance, but in human life, what we call religion is always an effort to try to seek to cover ourselves up to make ourselves presentable. Isn't that what religion really does? Seeking after God, finding some way to come to God's presence and say, God, hey, I'm okay. I've fixed it up. I've made myself look good. Problem is, what we end up with just is a lot of excuse making and blaming of others and makeshift solutions that don't change anything much. We're still wearing filthy rags. We go around with pretty good-looking exteriors. We're experts in fashions. You watch the advertisements and see the models parading around with Paris fashions. Boy, human beings have really perfected the way to look good. The styles are changing all the time, so we'll look different, and something else is in that wasn't in last year and whatever. But no matter how much we fix up the outside, we still don't want people to see what we look like on the inside. Well, my third point is to tell you tonight that Jesus came to this earth. He lived, he died, and he rose again so that you would be dressed properly on the inside. He came to win for you robes of eternal, lasting glory. The Bible shows that the only way to deal with the sin that equals our filthy rags on the inside of our souls. The only way to deal with it is by a blood cleansing. 
And not just some blood cleansing, not just a lamb of the Old Testament. That was a sign or, you know, like a street marker pointing to what was needed. But what was needed was much greater than that. It was a once-for-all dealing, and only Jesus did that. And the Scripture develops the idea that his blood cleanses completely, cleans up the filthy rags on the inside. Lots of ironies here, you see. Because it's no accident that on Calvary, as Jesus died, he had to be stripped of his own clothes and had to be ashamed hanging there on the cross. It was our shame that he bore, not his. He died without swaddling clothes in that final hour in order to provide this spiritual covering for those who would accept it in faith from him. It's a robe, a covering of his righteousness, large enough to enfold every one of us and yet fitting each of us exactly right. I read that secondary text from Isaiah 61. Let me read it again. It's a, it's a song. It's a song of exaltation. As Isaiah wrote, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult. Were you exulting at the beautiful music you heard tonight? You should have been. Glorious. My soul will exult in my God. Why? Because he has clothed me in garments of salvation. He has covered me with robes of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a beautiful headdress or a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Jesus came to provide you not with diapers, but with a robe of his own heavenly holiness, so that in that robe you could stand before the bar of justice of the eternal God, and God would look upon you and see the righteousness of his Son that you will be wearing. I vividly remember in high school, and maybe some of you do too, reading a book that was always assigned at least back in those days. I don't know if they read Dickens much at all anymore, but Charles Dickens' historical novel, A Tale of Two Cities. It's a complicated book, but the, the basic plot is pretty simple. Two men love the same woman. Charles Darnay is an aristocrat with a shady past and, and some political difficulties that uh, his ancestors did that got him in trouble, and he loves a woman named Lucy Manette. Sidney Carton is kind of a ne'er-do-well fellow, quite smart, but he's never really accomplished too much, and he also loves Lucy Manette. Most people don't notice the fact that these two men, because they're never really together, uh, they, don't, they don't have that much acquaintanceship, but if you put them side by side, they could almost be identical twins. Well, in the plot of the whole thing boiled down in the violent French Revolution, Sidney Carton, who by that time has married Lucy, is arrested because of his ancestors' crimes. And the French uh, provisional government brings him in, sentences him to die at the guillotine. He's kept in the Bastille. So Lucy's going to be a widow. Sidney Carton knows that he can't win Lucy. She's another man's wife already. But he makes a plot and gets a friend to help, and they go to the Bastille. And in the Bastille, they drug Charles Darnay, enough 
so that he doesn't quite know what's going on, and the two men switch clothes. And Sidney Carton stays in the Bastille while Darnay is taken out to safety by the friend. And you know the story. Sidney Carton goes to the guillotine. Why? He didn't have any special love for Charles Darnay, but he loved Lucy, the man's wife, and he did it for her. Two men changed clothes, and one died for the other. I won't insult your intelligence. You can see the equivalency to what Christ did. He came to earth to wear swaddling clothes at Bethlehem. He went naked to a cross, and he did it to provide a righteous covering for you so you don't have to appear before God in filthy, stinking rags of your own religious works that won't cover. You can enter heaven and stand before his Father in a borrowed robe of eternal glory. The Son of the highest God identified with us in his humble birth so he could do this. Why would you not call him Lord and King and take from him the wonderful gift that he offers for you to wear one day in God's presence? Father, I pray that we might get past just the tradition and the sentiment and the melodies and the family things and the presents and all the good things that are Christmas and see this that was being accomplished. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Amen.